Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I was poking around JSTOR Daily a while back, and while I was there, I found this article called Her Majesty's Kidnappers. And this article was about a couple of men who abducted boys and forced them to work as actors in early modern England. And I was like, well, I definitely have to find out more about that. So I did. And here is the episode that resulted. Uh, As it turned out, pressing boys into service as performers really wasn't new, and it wasn't isolated to these people that this article was about. Uh, What led to legal action in this particular case was that these guys abducted a kid whose father was in a position to actually do something about it. Uh, I did want to note, England is obviously not the only place where children have been made to work as performers under conditions that could be questionable at best a lot of the time. We're really not going to be talking about or even touching on other historical examples or like all the legal and ethical Issues that surround child performers in today's world, like those are all separate stories from that one with their own historical and social context. I'm sort of imagining people listening to this and thinking like, why aren't they talking about? Yes, but what about that one thing? Yeah, um, and that like, because those are whole other things. Yeah. The court case that we're talking about today was not directly connected to William Shakespeare, but it did happen during his lifetime while he was working as an actor and a playwright. So as folks probably know, and we actually alluded to it briefly during our Vander Barbette episode, women were not allowed to perform on stage at this point in British history. So in the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries, the roles of women and girls were played by young men and boys. But boys did not just play female roles in productions that otherwise had a cast of adult men. There were also entire troops of boys who worked as performers, stretching back to before there were established public theaters in England. 
the earliest British accounts of boys as actors were actually in the role of female characters, but these were not in Shakespearean comedies or tragedies. They were in liturgical productions that were staged by churches and cathedrals, and these might be performed at the church or on church grounds or in some other public space. There were also churches and religious groups that put on touring productions that sort of traveled among nearby towns doing miracle plays and mystery plays. In other words, they were depictions of the lives of particular saints or stories from the Christian Bible. Mentions of boys playing the roles of women in these kinds of productions go back at least to the 12th century. Not long after that, boys' choirs were established to perform religious music at services. Boys had been included in choirs before this point, but choirs only made up of boys whose voices had not yet changed due to puberty came a little bit later. The other place that boys were pretty likely to perform during this era was school. Performance was seen as a way for boys to practice their poise and their diction and to learn to develop things like public speaking skills. So school performances were usually of religious or didactic works or maybe classical pieces from Latin or Greek literature. Sometimes schools did put on public performances, but usually this was pretty controlled. So the audience was limited to the students' families or other members of the community, and it was really tightly supervised by the teachers. While she was still a princess, the future Queen Elizabeth I often liked to visit schools and particularly enjoyed being honored with a performance while she was there. Eventually, boys' performing troops were being invited to perform at court. The first written reference to one of these court performances dates back to 1485. Boys' performing companies became an established part of court entertainment in Tudor England, especially around the holidays, saints' feast days, and other celebrations. In 1509, King Henry VIII appointed William Cornish as Master of the Chapel Royal, and underneath Cornish's direction, the use of boys as actors and singers and other entertainers at court increased dramatically. Queen Elizabeth was also a fan of these companies, both before and after she ascended to the throne. So in Tudor England, whoever was in charge of court entertainment or whoever was specifically in charge of child entertainers, they often had the right to press people into service. We more often talk about impressment in the context of something like being forced to serve in the Royal Navy, but anybody whose labor was seen as valuable could be impressed. So that included artisans, skilled craftspeople, and performers, including child performers. Since the choirs were made up of boys whose voices hadn't changed due to puberty, these children were usually between the ages of about 6 and 14. If there are any first-person accounts from any of these children about what life was like in these troops, whether they were impressed or whether they were performing of their own free will. Tracy didn't find any of them. We don't know that any exists. But it's likely that the conditions that they were working in often were not good. We do have first-person accounts from people who encountered various children's troops who described those children as hungry, sick, and exhausted after traveling to their performance. It is also very likely that many of them were subjected to physical or sexual abuse. In the early mid-16th century, these troops started to evolve, and the material that they were performing evolved as well. 
rather than performing almost exclusively religious or didactic work or maybe classical literature and doing that at a church or a school or at court, troops started performing more comedic work for the public, including satirical songs and sketches and plays. Some of this grew out of the Protestant Reformation, since Catholic dramas and Catholic religious music were no longer permitted. Performers had to find new material. This wasn't entirely new. The earliest known English-language secular plays date back to about 1300, but more playwrights started writing these kinds of plays and more people started watching them. These troops also weren't performing at the large purpose-built theaters that might come to mind in the context of Elizabethan or Shakespearean theater, so those three-story round structures that were open in the center. None of those had been built yet when these troops started performing publicly. The first of those, the Red Lion, was erected in 1567, and James Burbage built England's first permanent theater, which was just called The Theater, in 1576. So instead, these boys' troops we're talking about were in much smaller, enclosed, repurposed spaces. Also, especially as people moved away from staging plays that were explicitly religious or didactic, Performing in public was seen as really suspect. There were plenty of small troops of entertainers, of adults who traveled around England putting on some kind of a show, but they were often regarded as vagrants or criminals. It's possible that the adults who were in charge of these troops of children thought that their age would offer them some protection from criticism or suspicion, and that really may have been true, but That didn't necessarily apply to the playwrights who were writing for children's troops. Some of these playwrights were censured or even imprisoned over material that they wrote that was then performed by children. One way the people who managed these boys' companies tried to get around this kind of suspicion was to frame their performances as rehearsals. So after all, if you were going to perform before the monarch, of course, you had to practice. What was the harm in selling a few tickets so that people could watch the boys rehearse and so the boys could get used to having an audience? It's possible that this really did start out with selling tickets to watch rehearsals, but soon, fully commercial, professional troops of children were regularly performing for a paying audience, just with their managers still describing it as a rehearsal. In 1572, the City Council of London banned public performances due to an outbreak of plague, and plays were banned altogether three years later. These boys' companies continued, though, thanks in part to that claim that they were just rehearsing ahead of their appearances at court. But the boys' companies started to be dismantled as well after Richard Ferrant, who was master of the children at Windsor Chapel, rented a space in Blackfriars that he said was going to be used for teaching and rehearsing, but he really turned it into a working public theater. After a lot of legal wrangling in 1584, Ferent's landlord, Sir William Moore, evicted him and the company. By 1590, most of the boys' companies that had been established earlier in the 16th century had fallen apart and no longer existed. But they were revived a few years later, and we'll get into that after a sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human, but if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. After a hiatus of about a decade, boys' performing companies were briefly reestablished in Britain. In 1599, a new troupe of boy actors was established at St. Paul's Cathedral. This was known as the Children of Paul's. And then another, the Children of the Chapel Royal, was established in 1600. The next part of this story is mostly focused on the children of the Chapel Royal, but these two troops really had a lot of similarities and sometimes they performed together. 
The Chapel Royal was the monarch's personal chapel, and the master of the children of the Chapel Royal was Nathaniel Giles, who was also organist and master of the choristers at St. George's Chapel, Windsor. So Giles managed boys who sang for church services and a troop of boy actors who were headquartered in Blackfriars in central London. So a bit on Blackfriars. Back in the 13th century, King Edward I had given land to the Dominican order to build a monastery and a cathedral. By the first decades of the 16th century, though, this order was becoming a lot smaller and less powerful, with fewer monks actually living there. So the order started renting out some of its buildings. In 1529, King Henry VIII also started using part of this site as the office and storage space for the king's revels, which was responsible for royal entertainments. This included storage for things like props and costumes. In 1536, after Henry VIII had cut ties with the Catholic Church, he started dissolving England's monasteries. The Dominican monastery in Blackfriars was dissolved two years later in 1538, but the area known as Blackfriars maintained its status as a liberty, meaning that it had some autonomy from the City of London Corporation that other parts of the city did not. So, as an important example for this story, if a group of performers in Blackfriars did something that upset the Lord Mayor of London, he did not have the authority to shut it down. Various buildings in Blackfriars were sold after the dissolution of the monasteries, and in 1550, part of this was granted to Sir Thomas Cowarden, who was master of the revels. After Cowarden's death, the property was eventually sold to Sir William Moore. Looping back to what we talked about before the break, Moore later rented this to Richard Ferrant, master of the children at, at Windsor Chapel, who used it as a theater for about a decade, starting in 1576, Usually, this theater is called the First Blackfriars Theater. And as we mentioned earlier, Moore evicted Ferrant and his company from that space in 1584 because it was not a rehearsal space. <laughs> it was an actual functioning theater. James Burbage, father of famed Shakespearean actor Richard Burbage, built a second, larger theater in Blackfriars in 1596, which was used primarily by the children's troops. And a lot of what we know about this theater's history comes from court records. The people involved with managing this theater filed so many lawsuits against each other. And there were also lawsuits filed by people from outside the company, including the one that we're going to be talking about shortly. By the time Burbage opened the second Blackfriars Theater in 1596, multiple standalone theaters had been built in and around London. There was the one just called the theater, built by Burbage, which uh, we mentioned. There was also the Curtain, the Rose, the Newington Butts Theater, and the Swan. So the second Blackfriars Theater was a lot smaller than all of these. It was roofed, like it was an enclosed building, rather than being open in the center like all of those other theaters were. And the Children of the Chapel Royal as a performing company was also different from the companies of adult men who were performing at these other larger public theaters. These adult companies were often beholden to one or more patrons who were funding their work, and the work itself was subject to approval and censorship by the Master of the Revels. 
During this period, the master of the revels was Edmund Tilney, whose role grew until he had near total control of English theater. Like, eventually, he allowed only two performing companies of men, and he had to personally approve every single play before it could be performed. But the boys' companies were not subject to any of that. It's often a little unclear whose authority they were performing under, if anybody's. They might be criticized for satirical work that insulted people in power, but they weren't stopped from performing it in the first place. Yeah, they were basically flying under the radar of uh, all of the censorship that sort of kept the other theaters in line. And then also the fact that they were performing in Blackfriars meant they had this other layer of protection. So we mentioned Nathaniel Giles, master of the Children of the Chapel Royal, earlier. In 1597, Queen Elizabeth I granted him a patent authorizing him to, quote, take so many children as he or his sufficient deputy shall think meet in all cathedral, collegiate, parish churches, chapels, or any place or places as well within liberty as without. This our realm of England, whatsoever they may be. So the purpose of this patent was to make sure that the most talented children in the realm were available to sing for the queen. But Giles did not focus strictly on finding good singers for the queen's entertainments. He got into a partnership with Henry Evans, who had apprenticed as a scrivener but had become a theatrical producer. In 1600, Evans leased the Blackfriars Theater from Cuthbert and Richard Burbage, sons of James Burbage, with the plan of establishing a company of boy performers there. Evans envisioned turning this company into a highly profitable business venture, which meant that Giles needed to use his patent to recruit enough boys to fill an entire acting troupe. By December of 1600, Giles and Evans were aggressively impressing children to fill out their acting company. If parents complained, sometimes they would offer them the option to buy out the boys' contract, which was really not much different from kidnapping children and then ransoming back to their parents, except in this case, these kidnappers had royal permission to impress children into performing, which meant Most parents didn't think they could complain about it. But then, on December 13, 1600, James Robinson, acting on the order of Nathaniel Giles, abducted 13-year-old Thomas Clifton as he was on his way to school. At around the same time, Robinson, Giles, and Evans also took a number of other boys. Nathan Field, John Chapel, and John Moderum were all in grammar school, and Alvary Trussell, Philip Pickman, Thomas Grimes, and Solomon Pavey were all apprentices. Thomas's father, Henry, was a member of the nobility, and he was well-connected enough to get his son back after about a day and a half. He went to his friend, Sir John Fortescue, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer and a member of the Privy Council, and he issued a warrant for Thomas's release. And then after that, Henry Clifton filed a complaint in the Court of the Star Chamber. The Court of the Star Chamber convened at Westminster. There are contradictory explanations for where the name came from, but most agree that the room where it originally heard complaints was decorated with stars in some way, either with a star-spangled ceiling or with drapes. This court had started out as a function of the Royal Council in the early 16th century. The council would take on legal questions that, for one reason or another, 
couldn't go through the regular court system. Eventually, this court evolved into its own body, although it still was made up of privy counselors, and it operated under the monarch's prerogative. It was outside the bounds of the courts of common law. A lot of the cases that were heard before the Star Chamber had to do with rioting or other disturbances of the peace, as well as defiance against royal proclamations. In this case, Henry Clifton's basic argument was that Giles was abusing a patent that had been granted to him by the Queen. And we're going to get to all the details after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? 
Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Henry Clifton's complaint was heard before the court of the Star Chamber on December 15, 1601. This complaint outlines his opinion that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth had granted letters patents to Nathaniel Giles, quote, for the better furnishing of your chapel royal with well-singing children. And this granted him to take such children from places like parish churches and chapels. But instead, Giles had confederated himself with James Robinson, Henry Evans, and others to put these boys into a, quote, company of lewd and dissolute mercenary players. The language used in this complaint is really repetitive, and it's kind of circular with just inordinately long sentences, which I'll tend to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I I usually enjoy reading historical documents like this, but I found this one in particular kind of exhausting. <laughs> so... Tracy, bless her, has edited all of that to make it a bit more understandable. And he basically accused them of, quote, endeavoring, conspiring, and complotting how to oppress diverse of your majesty's humble and faithful subjects, and thereby to make unto themselves an unlawful gain and benefit. They conspired and concluded for their own corrupt gain and lucre to erect, set up, furnish, and maintain a playhouse or place in the Blackfriars within your majesty's city of London to better furnish their plays and interludes with children, they and the said confederates, abusing the authority and trust by your highness, have most wrongfully, unduly, and unjustly taken diverse and several children from diverse and sundry schools of learning and other places and apprentices to men of trade from their masters. Clifton also spelled out that these children were being taken not for service as part of the choir in the Chapel Royal as had been intended, but they were being, quote, employed in acting and furnishing of the said plays and interludes. This was, he said, quote, against the wills of the said children, their parents, tutors, masters, and governors, and to the no small grief and oppressions of your majesty's true and faithful subjects. Importantly, Giles's patent empowered him to impress, quote, well-singing children. But the boys named in the complaint were, quote, no way able or fit for singing, nor by any the said confederates endeavored to be taught to sing, but by them the said confederates abusively employed, as aforesaid, only in plays and interludes. There's just a whole, whole lot of the said and the aforesaid in here. (laughs) Um, More than in the bits that we just read. So instead, Clifton's son had been given lines to learn, and he was threatened with being beaten if he did not learn them. Clifton called this an abuse of Her Majesty's commission. Clifton also described what had happened when he had gone to the theater to get his son back. He had been, quote, utterly and scornfully refused, and the perpetrators had basically dared him to take them to court. Clinton argued that it was, quote, not fit that a gentleman of his sort should have his son and heir, and that his only son, to be so basely used. 
So to be clear, Clifton was not arguing that no children should be impressed as performers, but that it was not appropriate for his son, due to his station and the fact that these children were being used as actors, not as singers and religious services. It was, in his words, quote, an abuse of the nobility of this, your highness's realm, and an abuse of your majesty's said commission. Many of the records relating to the court of the Star Chamber have not survived until today, so we don't have a lot of detail about the decision. But in short, the court found in Clifton's favor. Evans was censured for, quote, taking up of gentlemen's children against their wills and to employ them for players. He had to resign from his work at Blackfriars Theater and leave London. But in a lot of ways, this really didn't affect him. He transferred his interest in the company to his son-in-law, Alexander Hawkins, and Hawkins more or less ran things as Evans's proxy. We know all of this from a letter that was written later on by one of his associates, not from any actual legal records about this arrangement. For Giles, though, the biggest consequence was that when he received a new patent in 1606, It specified this, quote, We do straightly charge and command that none of the said choristers or children of the chapel so to be taken by force of this commission shall be used or employed as comedians or stage players or to be exercised or act in any stage plays, interludes, comedies, or tragedies. For that is not fit or decent that such as should sing the praises of God Almighty should be trained up or employed in such lascivious and profane exercises. Um, There's kind of a gap, though, between when this case was heard in 1606, and we don't really know if he kept impressing children as actors in that window between when the court case was decided and when he was issued this new patent. I love how it's like, you can kidnap them if they're going to sing for the queen. Only right. only religious music. But If they're going to sing church music, kidnapping them is fine. Just cool, cool, cool. And at least two of the boys named in Clifton's complaint wound up staying with the theater, Solomon Pavey and Nathan Field. Pavey had been apprenticed to Edward Pierce, who was choir master at St. Paul's. He died at the age of 13, but Field continued to act into adulthood, and he died in 1620. After all this, a lot of theater companies started at least nominally apprenticing young boys as actors rather than pressing them into service. But these apprenticeships were a lot different from the guild apprenticeships that people might be more familiar with. A guild apprenticeship was very lengthy and formalized, and while conditions for apprentices could be very poor, when the apprenticeship ended, the person was trained in a craft or a trade, and they had also earned a range of rights and privileges as a freedman. The boys who apprenticed as actors were often younger than typical guild apprentices, and based on the records that we have, most adult performers had not apprenticed as actors when they were children. So it was like, if children were being, quote, apprenticed, they weren't becoming actors using that training was when they were adults. It was actually a lot more likely for an actor who to have gone through an apprenticeship in some other trade and then come to acting as an adult. And then conscripting children for performing as singers continued for a lot longer. 
Once there were more permanent public theaters in England with established companies of adult actors, children's troops became increasingly controversial among performers and playwrights. There are written references to them in some of the dramatic work of the day. Shakespeare's Hamlet was written right around the time that the boys' companies were revived, and the first folio version includes a conversation between Hamlet and Rosencrantz, in which Rosencrantz describes a theater troupe as, quote, an airy of children, little Iases that cry out on the top of question and are most tyrannically clapped for it. Hamlet answers, quote, What are they children? Who maintains them? How are they escotted? Will they pursue the quality no longer than they can sing? Will they not say afterwards if they should grow themselves to common players, as it is most like, if their means are no better, their writers do them wrong to make them exclaim against their own succession? Ben Johnson's satire, The Staple of News, also includes a character called Censure who complains about these troops. Quote, They make all their scholars playboys. Is not a fine sight to see all our children made interluders. Do we pay money for this? We send them to learn their grammar and their Terence, and they learn their playbooks. The Staple of News was first performed in 1625, and at that point, boys' acting companies had once again faded out in England. Queen Elizabeth I died in 1603, and King James VI of Scotland and I of England succeeded her. His consort, Anne of Denmark, issued a new patent to the children of the royal chapel, and they became the children of the Queen's revels. They were disbanded about three years later after facing increasing criticism for performing a range of material that satirized the government, the nobility, and the monarchs. The Children of Pauls was disbanded in 1607 after the playhouse on the cathedral grounds was closed. London's theaters were closed down entirely in 1608 and 1609 due to plague. After the plague subsided, Richard Burbage evicted the remnants of the Boys' Company from the Blackfriars Theater, and it became the winter home of William Shakespeare's company, the Kingsmen. The Court of the Star Chamber also faced increasing opposition from the courts of common law and from some members of Parliament. It was abolished by the Long Parliament in 1641. We haven't really touched on this, but as a final note, there's a lot of literary criticism and theatrical scholarship that looks at how these companies of boy performers and the material they performed contributed to the development of English-language drama. Obviously, there were comedies and tragedies long before the 16th and 17th centuries, but a lot of what was being written in England and in English was either religious or didactic in nature. Playwrights writing for boys' companies, which were working outside the bounds of official patronage and censorship, laid a lot of the foundations for the English-language dramatic tradition. Virtually all of England's most prominent playwrights during these decades wrote for children, and wrote material for children that broke away from what was expected in terms of form and content. Yeah, I read one paper that was sort of like, I'm not going to go so far as to say that without these boys' companies, there would be no William Shakespeare, but, like, it really was a lot of playwrights kind of cutting their teeth on writing different material that was then going to be performed by children. It's a wild thought. It is. And that also makes, like, uh, such a hugely complicated moral and... um, like analytical 
set of criteria to look at oh, everything sure. through where it's sure. like, I like this play, but it's grounded in enslavement of children and that's not good. And I don't yeah. know how we reconcile all of this. Yeah, I, uh, of course, um, I think most people who have ever studied Shakespeare probably are aware about, um, you know, women's parts being played by boys and young men. Uh, I was really not aware until getting into this that there had been whole companies of just child actors who were all boys in England, specifically. Uh, I do have some listener mail, which is about a totally different subject. This is from Jen. Jen wrote, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I loved the Tomatoes episode, and especially the Friday behind-the-scenes conversation I wanted to write to share my own history with disliking slash loving tomatoes. As a kid, I had the same aversion to chunky tomato textures as Tracy. I enjoyed the flavor, loved tomato soup, non-chunky tomato sauces, and ketchup. Yes, even the strange, colorful ketchups that Heinz introduced when I was 13. Holly is making, like, I love those excited, excited gestures about the colorful ketchups. But any semblance of actual tomato texture? No, thanks. My mom would roll her eyes when I asked her to buy me jarred salsa only to scrape the tomato chunks off my tortilla chip with each dip, so only a flavorful tomato juice coated it. Meanwhile, my paternal grandpa had a garden filled with tomato plants that he tended with care each summer. Those plants brought him so much pride and happiness, and each time my parents and I joined my grandparents for dinner, grandpa would pick a few tomatoes and serve them as a side dish sliced with a pinch of salt on top. He, grandma, and my mom would devour them with praise for how fresh and yummy they were. My dad and I would abstain. Ew, tomatoes. And grandpa would reply, sheesh, you don't know what you're missing. Flash forward to college with a buffet-style cafeteria in my dorm in a city full of diverse culinary experiences. By then, my grandpa was sick and unable to take care of the garden. Still, thinking about what grandpa said, and in line with Holly getting swayed by beautiful words about tomatoes, it seemed like I had been missing out on something. I started sneaking sliced tomatoes into my cafeteria sandwiches and eating entire chipfuls of salsa without scraping off the tomato pieces. Little by little, my taste buds started to accept fresh tomatoes as a legitimately delicious food. My big realization of this change was a few years later when I attended an EarthFest festival on the Boston Esplanade, and each one of the organic grocery store tents was handing out fruit and vegetable samples. I was offered an entire tomato, and I bit into it as if it was an apple, savoring each bite. My grandpa passed away soon after I finished college and didn't get to witness my love of tomatoes. Still, every time I smell a vine-fresh tomato, I think of him and smile. I now have a garden full of my favorite cherry tomato plants and a big old tomato tattoo on my arm in memory of my grandpa. I've also attached a photo of my pup, uh, I think Risa is how we say this, uh, who also enjoys occasional ripe tomato. Keep up the amazing work. I always look forward to your episodes, especially the food history ones. Take care and have a relaxing and lovely summer. Jen, we have a very cute dog uh, and a great tomato tattoo. Yeah! Um, I wanted to read this in part because I love this story for one thing. It did occur to me after we had that whole behind-the-scenes conversation that one thing that I will eat that does include big pieces of uh, of tomato um, is caprese salad because the combination of, you know, slices of tomato uh, with 
the cheese and the olive oil and the basil and like all that. Like that I actually find pretty good, but still just plain tomatoes. Big chunks of them by themselves, not usually my favorite. Last night I had um, a like very basic store-bought salad as part of my dinner and it had like four or five little cherry tomatoes in there and I ate none of them. <laughs> Zero of them. Listen, cherry tomatoes are a gamble because sometimes they'll even look great and I don't yeah. love them to begin with, but like a, a ripe flavorful one can be good, but sometimes they look great and they just taste like not good. Yeah. That dog is uh, weapons grade cute, by the way. Yes. During, <laughs> during tomato season, I will get like an heirloom tomato at the farmer's market and and cheese from the cheese vendor. Like, we'll get a bunch of farmer's market stuff and make, like, a caprese salad or something. And that I, I do really enjoy. And I ate a million of it when we were in Italy. <laughs> like, every yeah. meal. It was, or just, like, there would be some kind of fresh mozzarella appetizer. There was a lot of, a lot of that. So, anyway, thank you so much, Jen, for this email and these pictures. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show at the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.